Today's book spent more than two years on the New York Times bestseller list. In this episode of 2000 Books, Gretchen Rubin and I discuss why happiness is the key to achieving more in life and the four keys to live a happier, more meaningful life. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs, books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Gretchen Rubin is the author of several books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, and Happier at Home. Today, we're talking about The Happiness Project, an account of the years she spent test driving the wisdom of the ages, the current scientific studies, and the lessons from popular culture about how to be happier. Gretchen, I'm really excited to have you on the show and talk about a topic that I personally struggle with. Balancing ambition and the pursuit of happiness are not always an easy topic. So welcome, Gretchen. Thank you. I'm very happy to be talking to you. (laughs) That's right. We have to be happy to be talking to each other here. Um, Let's talk about the book. What was your personal story? What led you to writing The Happiness Project? Well, um, it started in a very inconspicuous moment uh, of my day. I was just finishing up my biography of JFK, and I was stuck on a bus, on a city bus, and I had a rare, one of those rare opportunities for reflection, and I thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, well, I want to be happy. Uh, and I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or how I could be happier. So I thought, I should have a happiness project. Mm. And I ran out to the library the next day and got a huge stack of books about happiness to try to figure out, you know, well, what is happiness? Can I make myself happier? You know, what do the great minds recommend and re- modern research and all that? And at first, it was just going to be for me. I was just going to do a happiness project for myself. Um, And I often become very preoccupied with subjects and will do a lot of research and note-taking and things just kind of for my own sake. But happiness was so – it was such a big, rich, um, kind of limitless subject that after a while I started thinking, wow, maybe this should be my next book Mm. because it felt so big. And so that's when it went from being just my own personal happiness project uh, to the subject of my next book. Great. And – you, I mean, you break it down. This book is kind of laid out in an interesting fashion. You talk, you take each month and you take one new project, one new happiness project. You take on one new happiness project and you go through it and you write about it in interesting details and stories. So um, let's talk about the first one because I believe it is really profound, really important for us to, to, uh, to get the most out of life. And happiness, um, not just in happiness terms, but overall in the juice of life. And that is boosting our energy. Yes. Well, you know, everyone's happiness project would be different. And what I did, as you said, was I decided I would do it for a year because a year felt like long enough that there could be real change, but not so long that it felt endless. And so I thought, well, what are the 12 areas that I would work on in my life that would make me happier? And again, yours could be very different from mine, but... Um, I decide I picked my my twelve, and then I decided I would make energy first, as you say. And my thought was that if if you have energy, everything's easier. You know, it's it's easier to exercise. It's easier to keep your uh, to make decisions. It's e- your immune function works better. Everything's easier with energy. So what I did was, you know, given that I wanted to have more energy, I tried to figure out some concrete, manageable resolutions that I could follow and really track and see if I was actually doing it um, to give myself more energy. Absolutely. I mean, it's not, it's not, um, I I think it's pretty well known now, the idea of runner's high or the idea that uh, health is first wealth or the fact that just a workout gives us tremendous energy. And I'm just talking physical energy here at this point, though we're talking, I'm sure you, you know, you're also talking mental and emotional energy in some ways. Um, But energy by itself is, is, is such, um, such a driving force in our lives. 
Yeah, and, and you mentioned exercise. One of the things that one of the mistakes people make is they think, well, I'm too tired to exercise. But in fact, if you unless you're exercising really at the very extreme end of things, for most people, exercise is boost energy instead of draining energy. So feeling tired, feeling sluggish, that is a reason to exercise. You're going to feel more energetic afterward than you did before it. And so, um, you know, and again, but a lot of this stuff is stuff you know. You know you should get enough sleep, right? Right? The, just the evidence is overwhelming. I don't think there's anybody anymore who falls into that myth of thinking, well, I can train myself to get by with three hours. No, you can't. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've all seen the research. Um, and so then, so the, the, the challenge for something like a happiness project is, okay, knowing what you know, how can you make it real in your life? How can you act on that idea so that you actually are getting more sleep or you actually are getting regular exercise? Um, and so that was what I was really focusing on. Like, what were the specific actions I was asking of myself? And then how was I going to actually follow through with that? So what were, I, I, I usually, we, you know, go towards the end of the interview, where we talk about action items, but here I want to focus on them as they come up. So what were your key takeaways? What helped you build this habit, build this routine into your system when it came to energy? Well, first is um, going to sleep earlier to get more sleep um, because almost everybody probably needs more sleep than they get. Another one was to exercise more consistently. Um, an interesting way that people that people don't um, – a, a place where you get energy that I think a lot of people don't recognize is that for many people, outer order contributes to inner calm and inner energy and inner self-command. And by, you know, tossing, organizing um, – like fixing things that don't work, putting things in their proper places. So many people have said to me over and over how energized they feel by that. Um, you know, like cleaning out your office makes you feel more able to write the annual report. Or a friend of mine said, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. There's a weird uh, kind of, and I wrote about it again in Happier at Home and in Better Than Before, because my, my next two books, because I, I think that there's, really not a sufficient explanation for me why there is this connection between outer order and inner calm and inner energy. Because, you know, you could say, well, in the context of a happy life, a messy closet is trivial. And it is trivial. And yet over and over, I experience and people tell me they experience a huge surge of energy. Cleaning out the garage can help you, you know, do better at work or um, dealing with your filing cabinet finally, uh, just makes you feel like your whole mind has opened. Um, so that was one. Um, another is just to tackle a nagging tasks. Most mm. of us have things that we know we should do and we keep putting off, and those weigh us down. They sap our energy. Um, and so just, you know, figuring out how to deal with that stuff um, Mm -hmm. can, can make a big difference. And here's a quick, easy one. This is like if you like emergency 911, like you don't have time to clean out your office, you don't have time to you know sleep more, you don't have time to go to the gym. Like, what can you do if you need more energy right this second? And that is act more energetic. Mm -hmm. um, if you do 10 jumping jacks, if you run down the stairs, if you even walk more quickly or even speak with more vivacity, that's going to raise your energy. So if you just act with more energy and behave in a more energetic way, you will feel your energy jump. And in my household, whenever anybody's feeling blue or tired, I always say do 10 jumping jacks because it really does make a difference. Absolutely. I mean, such a powerful, so so true. I mean, so true in so many different levels. Unfortunately, in this culture, we're, we're fed to believe that our feelings lead to our actions and they lead to our behaviors and which make us who we are. But the truth is it works the other way around and yes. actions come before feelings. No, and it's it's interesting. That is one of the, the kind of the psychological, um, uh, you know, um, insights that many people don't understand. And the way that you can harness this for your own benefit is that if there's a way that if you want to change your emotional state, so you're feeling shy, you're feeling nervous, you're feeling lethargic. The way to do that is by changing your actions. It's very hard to directly change your emotional state, but you can mm -hmm. change your actions. So if you're feeling shy, act outgoing. If you're feeling lethargic, act energetic. Um, and, you know, sometimes people say, well, I want to be authentic. Well, it's not that you're being inauthentic. It's that you're tapping into an aspect of your behavior and your emotions that you want to highlight. You don't want to just 
passively let these things roll over you. You want to take a more direct conscious control of your emotional state. And the way to do that is by controlling actions, because that is what is really within our, you know, very, it's very easy to redirect your behavior. Yes, yes. If you decide to, yeah, much more than your emotional state. Much more than our emotional states, because they're very, they're under the surface and very hard to control directly. I mean, it, it, it takes takes a lot more effort than just to act and uh, you know the the court the common court is um, you act you fake you it make, till you feel yeah, it you make, fake it till you, till you make it um, yeah. fake it till you feel it yeah fake it till you feel it mm-hmm. yeah hmm. the way I thought of it was the fake it till you make it but that makes more sense fake it till you feel it <laughs> and that will lead you to the that's true yeah that's true. That's true. Okay, makes sense. And uh, just to touch base on the other idea that you were talking about, which was uh, the idea of uh, like cleaning out the clutter or changing the uh, changing your space in order to get more energy. Now, here's the thing: I I'm a physicist. I'm an electrical engineer, so I like specific, scientifically proven stuff. But this is what happened to me in my personal life. I was rearranging. I live on the 16th floor uh, here in this building in downtown San Diego, and I was rearranging one of my uh, of my living rooms. And uh, um, I was rearranging because I felt somehow I felt like I was uh, constrained by the way things were in that room. And as soon as I moved one of my couches away and let the room flow the way it was calling it to. I felt so much more, so much more relieved and so much uh, energized. I felt like something had opened up and I can't describe it. As I said, you know, I'm an engineer. I, I need solid scientific proof, but it happened. So I believe exactly what you're saying there. Well, and I think this is the like feng shui is I think a lot of people who don't literally believe in feng shui and that like they don't believe there's dragon energy or whatever. They do believe that there's some tie between uh, uh, environment and like a sense of energy and so it feels true uh, in a way even if it's sort of not scientifically true um, and then there's certainly aesthetic concerns also like uh, there's a fantastic book that I recommend constantly called A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander where he tries to kind of uh, analyze what it is about different uh spaces that make people feel comfortable in them like ceilings at different heights or light on two sides or uh garden overlooking life or you know terrace overlooking life or child cave um so there's a lot of ways to think about these things um and i think sometimes people have different vocabularies for it too and so you may prefer one vocabulary over another um and it's but it's just sort of like how do you uh, shine a spotlight on whatever it is that you could do to make yourself happier. Right, right. Um, now, I want to move to another idea in the book, and we're not necessarily going in uh, serial order here. Uh, I'm just going by the ones that I felt were really important to talk about. The idea about making time for friends and how our social bonds are probably the most meaningful contributor towards our happiness, and not only happiness, but long-term well-being, long-term um, richness of life. And not only that, actually the length of our lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there, there's so much research on this. And it's something where ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree. Um, to be happy, we need strong, enduring relationships. We need to feel um, like we can confide. We need to feel like we belong. We need to feel like we have, you know, long, intimate connections with other people. We need to be able to get support. And just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. And so it's absolutely true that whenever whenever you're sort of thinking about, okay, how do I spend my precious time, energy, or money uh, in order to be happier? Anytime you do that in order to deepen a relationship or broaden relationships, that's probably going to make you happier. So if you're thinking like, well, I, should I go to the effort and, the, and, and spend the money to go to my college reunion or to go to that friend's wedding or to have this party? Um, is it worth my while to like go to that? You know, should I stay after work to go to the holiday party or should I just go home? Um, usually, you know, you're making a good bet if you're doing something that is going to build relationships with other people. Because in the end, when they look at people who are very happy, they're, once, they're people who have more 
uh, deep relationships. And absolutely, as you mentioned, people with more relationships tend to have longer, healthier lives. Yeah, um, they have done research of uh, the people, which is the blue zones. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that research where blue zones are uh, where people live the longest in this world. And they tried to figure out what was the common theme here. And they looked at all their diet and all their exercise habits and all this stuff. And these were people living into 80s and 90s and beyond. And finally, they came to the conclusion that in reality, the common the only common factor was they all had very strong social ties. That was the only reason why they were living the long, longest in this whole world. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think in our busy lives today, in our um, busy lives as entrepreneurs, what sometimes we do to ourselves is we say, okay, I don't have enough time for this event. I don't have enough time for doing this. What what has been what has worked for you? Because I know you are a very busy person. So how have you been able to incorporate this in your life? What are some actionable um, uh, tips and advice you have for us? Um, well, one thing is, it sounds funny to talk about efficiency and friendship. Um, but one of the things that I found is that it's really uh, efficient way to have friends and to make new friends or relationships is to form a group to launch or start a group. Because the thing about a group is that um, is that if you it, let's say a group forms and you meet once a month or you meet every six weeks or you meet you know twice a year. If you miss one, that's okay because you'll come back next time. You're having enduring relationships because you're going to see people over and over. And typically when groups form, it's like I'll invite you and you and I will agree to start a group. And you'll invite a couple of your friends and I'll invite a couple of my friends. And so you meet my friends and your friends meet my friends. And I meet all of your friends and so do my friends. And it turns out there's something called triadic closure, which is that if you want to make a friend – the best place to make a friend is by becoming friends with the friends of your friends, which is very hard to say, but you get the point, which is like when you have somebody in between you as a friend, those are the people that you will most easily become friends with. Now, this could be pure friendships um, or it could be kind of a business thing. Like maybe I'm in a writer's group. It's called a working writer support group. And it's people where we don't talk. We don't like show our work. We don't talk about writing per se. We talk about like being a writer as a career because writers are all kind of standalones. And so it's hard for us to talk shop. Um, and so this is a place where you can say like, well, how do you have it set up with your agent? Or like, what are you hearing about these changes at this publishing house? Or like, do we all really need to worry about Facebook live or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. Um, and so we get together and can have that kind of exchange. And the thing is over time, these people, they go from being, you know, strangers to acquaintances, and then sometimes to becoming really close friends um, that I would see outside the context of the group. So I'm a big, big fan of groups. And now you might say like, well, I don't like groups because I'm kind of introverted. Well, maybe you want to be in a smaller group, but even introverts um, like having social uh, connections and, and engaging with other people, but they like different kinds of environments. So you would just want to think about how to set it up um, for your environment. Um, and another thing is just to remember that um, uh, a lot of time, one of the, if, if you want to be purely strategic, I'm sure you've seen this research, which is about the value of loose ties. Mm -hmm. And and what they've learned is that when you're, let's say you're trying to get a new job or you're trying to round up clients or you're trying to like figure out a way to get something done, that a lot of times when you turn to your network to try to help you, the people who are the most helpful are the people that you have only loose ties to. And the theory is that, well, if, you're, if you have strong ties to someone, you and that other person probably know pretty much the same thing. They're not going to add that much more beyond what you have. But a loose tie is somebody who's kind of in a different world from you. So they might have a whole different set of associations and information and contacts that they're bringing to you. And so one of the ways that you maintain these loose ties is just being out in the world, is just seeing people, is showing up. And so sometimes you go to something and you think – well, I don't really know what I got out of that or what was the point of that. Um, but you never know because sometimes these loose ties um, can really uh, end up being important. Now, I would say that for myself, I, I think about this all the time and I'm sure all your listeners have the same thing, which is you can't say yes to everything because mm -hmm. then you would never do your work. 
You can't say no to everything because then you're shutting yourself off from the world. So how do you decide? And that is sort of agonizing decision making, which is, is this particular thing worth my time? Um, and that, and, and there's sort of, sort of no easy heuristic for that because you sort of, you have to, how convenient is it? How likely is it, is it to be valuable? Who else is going to be there that I'm going to see that I would like to see? Um, there's definitely a trade-off because you don't want to say yes to everything and you don't want to say no to everything. So what do you say yes to? It's, it's a balance and it, it is, and at least for me, it's something that I, I think about all the time. It drives me crazy. <laughs> but at the same time, I think the, the essence is of us becoming aware yeah. and starting that process because awareness will start making that decision easier for us over time. Yeah. 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 yeah that's, this is great because, uh, uh, sometimes, as 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 we just touched, touched on, like being busy uh, makes it really easy to be even more busy with ourselves and stop uh, reaching out to people when we know reaching out to them not only for our own need but actually helping them can provide us one of the greatest jo- sources of happiness. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about another key idea. I mean, there's so many great ones. I could you know we could talk on for hours. Talk about this for hours, but. Aiming higher. Now, this is, this is, uh, it's it's the whole idea that happiness lies in the growth, in the journey, in the fact that we're gonna keep on, you know, improving ourselves, and that's where the pursuit is what makes us happier. Yeah, and this this was something that took me a little while to understand because as I was writing the book, um, I was trying to come up with in my mind for sort of a framework for understanding. How do you how would you tackle the challenge of making your life happier? Like how do you think about it just systematically? And so there's four parts to it. One is uh it's feeling good, feeling right, feeling good, thinking about feeling good, thinking about feeling bad, thinking about feeling right in an atmosphere of growth. So thinking about feeling good is I want to have more friends, more fun, more satisfaction, more interesting things to do. Feeling bad is like, I want to have less anger, less boredom, less guilt, less resentment. So you can either pull yourself up or you can get rid of the things that are dragging you down. And I think those are very easy to understand for everyone. Mm -hmm. A little trickier is feeling right. And feeling right is that sometimes we do things that do not make us feel good. They might actually make us feel bad, but we do them and they make our lives happier because in this way, we live up to our values. Mm. And the fact that, and I can say something that scientists cannot say, which is happiness doesn't always make you feel happy. Yes, yes. And, yeah, and one of the ways that this comes up a lot is, um, and this is research that drives me crazy, which is a research finding that people talk about all the time in the happiness field is that one of the things that really makes people unhappy is a bad commute. You never adjust to it. It's bad every time. It drives you crazy. There's all kinds of reasons why a bad commute is bad for happiness. But so often they go on to say, like, and therefore, the answer is to move closer to work. And I always want to say, but the reason that a lot of people live far from work is not because they're under some delusion that this is going to make them happy, this long commute. They do it for someone else. They do it because they want their children to live in a certain school district or they want their children to have like a yard or be able to have a dog or, you know, whatever it is. And so they're doing something that they know is not going to make them feel good, but they're doing it because it makes them feel right because they're living their values. They're making a choice that allows them to live up to their value of being a good parent who's, you know, providing a great environment. That's one. So that's, that's what feeling right is. Or like going to the hospital to visit the sick parent who was always a big jerk to you anyway. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do according to what you think, not because you feel like you're going to enjoy it or get anything out. You know, it's, it's not going to be lifting you up, but you feel right about it. But what you were talking about, about the journey, is about the atmosphere of growth. Mm-hmm. And it's very striking that in a happy life, we're happier when we're growing, when we're learning something or improving something or helping someone or fixing something or helping something grow. And whether that is, you know, housebreaking a puppy or raising a child or helping a nonprofit get its finances in order or learning how to use new software or going to a conference for the first time and giving a keynote when you're really scared, but yeah, you're going to do it and you did it and you feel great about that. Um, the atmosphere of growth, it can often be frustrating. It can be scary because it's hard. Like when you're pushing yourself, that's scary. But then that atmosphere of growth is so satisfying. And the atmosphere of growth is something that we can do 
Um, even when everything in her life is kind of falling into chaos. I remember a friend of mine said um, she she got fired from her job. She got rejected from a PhD program, and her longtime boyfriend broke up with her in like the space of three weeks. It was crazy. Aww. And I, and now she's fine. But I said to her, "How did you get through it?" And she said, "Well, I was practically addicted to doing good deeds for people um, because it was like by helping other people." she felt like she had that atmosphere of growth and that gave her happiness at a tough time. One of the best ways to make yourself happy is to make other people happy. And so, um, yeah, so the atmosphere of growth is very important. Yeah, yeah. And I want to touch back again on the idea of the fact that happiness doesn't always make you feel happy. It's such a paradoxical idea. It's yes. so <laughs> hard to understand and it took me forever to understand, but it's almost like a meta level. You have to step back and you have to see that once, to me, it was the realization that it is okay to be unhappy in the fact, in the, the, the fact that happiness doesn't have to be the only thing in life. And once I realized that happiness, unhappiness is also part of life, challenges are also part of life, problems are also part of life, and it's okay for them to exist, that gives me a sense of joy and happiness that I would never get by pursuing or just by um, just the act of trying to be happy. Right, because, because sometimes we do things in the present that make us unhappy, uncomfortable, scared, um, because we know that, that over the long run, they're going to make us happier. You know, like maybe right now I feel like doing X, but I know that in the long run, I'll be happier if I do Y. Or, you know, it's really boring to study for the MCAT, but I know that I'll be, if I really want to be a doctor, then this is part of what I have to do. You know, so people often say, like, you have to think about now. We, it's, again, it's a paradox. It's like you were saying, it's a paradox. One of the paradoxes is you have to think about now, but then you also have to think about the future because um, one day that will be now. And you want to be thinking about how to set yourself up for that now, now. <laughs> because what will you then wish you had done, at, you know, today? Um, uh, what, you know, in my book, Better Than Before, where I talk about how to master habits, because, of course, um, it, when people are trying to make themselves happier, a lot of times they want to change their habits. And I was very I became very interested in how people could or couldn't change habits. And one of the things that people often invoke to get out of a good habit when they're looking for a loophole um, is they say uh, it's what I call the fake self-actualization loophole, which is like. Life's too beautiful not to do, life's too short not to eat a brownie. On this beautiful afternoon, I can't go into the <laughs> library and do my research. Like, on a day like today, who could be making cold calls? Or like, I owe it to myself to live for the moment. It's like, well, the moment matters, but the future matters too. Yes. And, um, and, 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 and fake self-actualization can get you out of anything. Um, because it's a, you could always say like, oh, on a, you know, life's too short not to do blah, 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 blah. Um, but if you never do the stuff that's a little bit more challenging, um, that very quickly becomes a less happy life. Yeah, and that's like a, a very stoic way of looking at the world, which is like understanding that we we have to embrace the challenges that come our way. And that inherently is way more joyous and happy, uh, will give you way more joy and happiness than any kind of short-term pleasure will. Well, and another way that negative emotions are, re are really important, I think you're so right to talk about negative emotions because sometimes people pretend like with the happiness project, I'm arguing that everybody should be blissfully happy 24-7. <laughs> I don't think that's possible and I don't think it would be a good life. But one place where negative emotion can be very instructive is envy. Envy is a very, very painful emotion and people often don't even want to admit to themselves let alone to other people that they are feeling envy. But mm -hmm. envy is helpful. It is a giant spotlight on something that is telling you that someone has something that you wish you had for yourself. And um, I mean, I switched from law to writing. And one of the reasons that I did was I was reading my alumni magazine where you know, it talked about everybody in my college class, what they were doing. And what I realized is when people were, had cool law jobs, I was kind of mildly interested. And when they had cool writing jobs, I was just sick with envy. And I thought, well, that's telling me something about what I want for myself. Or a friend of mine was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, she was constantly like criticizing this woman in her office who was always going on these exotic trips. And then finally, she's like, well, I finally realized what was making me crazy is I wanted to go on more trips. I want to travel. 
And there was no reason that I wasn't. I was just like not dealing with, I mean, I could go away for the weekend. I could plan a trip. Why wasn't she? She just wasn't. And so instead of being, instead of seeing that envy as being a negative, she should say, wow, this is something that's missing from my life. I need to plan a trip. And then I won't be envious of her because I'll have my own excellent trip to look forward to. So it can be very helpful. It's unpleasant, but it's mm -hmm. helpful. Very interesting, yeah. And in the same way, I'm sure there are a lot of challenging emotions can instruct us, guide us, and move us in the right direction. Um, so let's talk about another idea that I personally struggle with, which is being serious about play. And I know a lot of our listeners struggle with because somehow we correlate the idea of being ambitious with the idea of never playing, never having any fun. Yeah. No, I mean, for a lot of people... Um you know, it's the thing that always falls to the bottom of the to-do list. And so, and again, in Better Than Before, where I was really looking at habits, um, one of the habits, if you, if you feel like there's no fun in your life, if you feel like there's no fun in life, it's very hard to be happy. And in fact, research shows that it's not enough to just have the absence of negatives. You have to have positives in order to be happy. So there's really a place for it. Um, you really want to like put it on the schedule. Like it's just as important as a conference call. If you want to go for a run with your dog, like put that in the calendar um, and, and treat it like something else that needs to happen. You know, I have read, just like read a book on my calendar sometimes because I want to make sure that I get my reading done, which is the most important kind of uh, leisure for me. Um, but one of the things that was interesting uh, in my study of habits is, so there's 21 strategies that I say we can use to make or break our habits. And one of these is the strategy of treats. Mm. And certainly one way to have a treat is to have fun whether that's playing tennis or uh, window shopping or getting a massage or doing a crossword puzzle, um, taking a nap, whatever it would be a treat for you. They're really important because they energize us, they make us feel cared for, and they help us avoid problems like burnout, resentment, and then the feeling of like, after the day I've had I deserve, I need, I want, I can't possibly deny myself this, you know, because it's like, I've worked so hard all day, I haven't had any time for myself. Therefore, of course, I deserve to have three glasses of wine. And of course, I'm going to stay up till 3am binge watching Game of Thrones, because after the day I've had, I deserve it. Okay, even though you're saying, in the long run, are those three glasses of wine going to make you happier? Is binge watching television until 3am going to make you happier? No, but you feel like you need it. I want it. I deserve it because your life doesn't have its own treats. But if you take control of healthy treats, if you say to yourself, you know what, after that meeting, I am going to just be, my mind's going to be blown. I'm not going to have, I'm just going to be at my, 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 just at the end of my energy. Instead of going back to the office and trying to force myself to do an hour and a half of work, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to go and go to that camping store and just like look at all this camping stuff and think about like what do we need for our camping trip this summer because it'll be fun and it'll restore my energy and then when you go back to your desk you're going to be in much better shape because a lot of times it's when we're at our when we're deprived and uh de depleted is when you start indulging in bad habits it's when you start losing self-control you know and if there's anything that an entrepreneur needs, it's self-command. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to tell yourself what to do and to do it. Um, and that means, you know, keeping yourself in fine form. And treats have an important role to play with it. When we give more to ourselves, we can ask more from ourselves. And so they really do play a very important role in keeping us ready for everything that life is going to throw at us. Yes, yes. And I, I can associate with the idea of how when sometimes you just uh, think you deserved a break and then the break becomes so long and you're like, yes. what the hell did I do to myself? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go on ESPN.com for five minutes and then four hours later, you're like, wait, what happened? Yeah. 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 yeah it's it's almost like it, there's a sadistic pleasure in depriving yourself of all the joys of life just because you think that's the pathway to greatness in some ways but it's also a sure short pathway to making our ourselves actually less productive it seems yeah i think for i think it's uh yeah you want to keep yourself uh because it's not about like can you get the most possible done today it's like over six months how am I going to like be able to maintain a grueling pace? And like sometimes to keep going, you have to let yourself stop. 
Um, and, uh, and so, and, 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 and kind of being always in crisis mode where, and you know, there's something very relaxing about crisis mode. My sister's a TV writer. And so she often gets into periods where there are, is kind of like a crisis mode. And she said, the problem with it is, is that it can become kind of a crutch because you're like, oh my gosh, I mean, I have to meet this big deadline. And so therefore nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. I can't expect myself to go to the gym. I can't expect myself to eat healthy. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I have to read to my kid that boring book that he wants me to read to him over and over again, because I'm in this crisis. So I don't have to do anything. I don't have to make a dentist appointment. I don't have to answer bills. I don't have to check my voicemail because I'm dealing with a crisis. Well, everybody in everybody's life, there are periods of crisis where everything else has to kind of go on hold. But some people sort of maintain this over the long term, this is kind of their mode, and they sort of feel like everything else is, like they're justified in ignoring everything else. But the problem is that stuff often will come back to you in a very unpleasant way if you leave it neglected for too long. So in a, in a, in a productive life, you need to have time for everything, including play and leisure and relationships and sleep. Because um, that's what's going to help you keep going over the long term. Yeah, I mean, what you said was tr- so true. We wear workaholism as a badge of honor, crisis mode as a badge of honor. It's like something great that's going on. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've, we've talked about quite a few ideas, Gretchen. What is one idea you want to cover that we haven't covered yet? Well, I came up with this personality framework that I'm really interested in, and I think, and I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, and I'm often asked to present on it um, when I'm talking to people who are entrepreneurs. So I'd love to introduce it to your audience. Mm -hmm. And it sounds a little boring when I start, so hang in there because I promise it gets juicy. And this is a framework that divides the whole world into four categories. Um, They say there's two kinds of people, the kind of people who divide people into two categories and the people who don't, (laughs) and I'm the kind who does. And, um, And you'll see, as I explain it, why this is important for entrepreneurs. So This has to do with the way a person responds to an expectation. And there are two kinds of expectations. There are outer expectations, like a work deadline or a request from a spouse. And then there are inner expectations, like you want to keep your New Year's resolution or um, you want to start a business in your free time uh, on top of your regular day job. Um, So there's outer expectations and inner expectations. So there are upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline. They keep the nearest resolution without much fuss. They want to know what's expected of them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Now, questioners question all expectations. They will not do anything that they will resist anything that they think is inefficient or arbitrary or unfair. Um, they want reasons and justifications for why they're going to do something. And so they turn everything into an inner expectation because if some, if an expectation meets their inner standard, they will do it. No problem. If it doesn't, they will be like, I'm not going to do that. Mm. Then are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So they have no trouble meeting a work deadline for a boss, but when they're trying to start the side business on their own and no one's looking over their shoulder, it's very hard for them to get moving. And then there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it in their own way. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. Now, this, I think this is important for entrepreneurs because the obliger tendency is the largest tendency. That is the one that the most people belong to. And over and over, I've heard from people who are very frustrated by themselves because they, they and they'll say something like, um, you know, well, I was a journalist and I had no trouble writing when I was at the newspaper. But now that I've gone on book leave and I'm writing this novel in my free time, I've got writer's block. Or somebody will be like, oh, yeah, like I never had trouble meeting a deadline when I was at that big company. But now that I'm freelance, I can't I'm paralyzed or I keep saying to myself that I want to build this other career and I know what I need to do to do it. And yet every weekend goes by and I don't do a darn thing in order to pursue my dream. I guess I always put other people in front of my myself. Mm. The answer, if you experience something like this, because it can be paralyzing for entrepreneurs, is outer accountability. That is what an obliger needs. To meet an inner expectation, there has to be some form of outer accountability. Now, whether that is an accountability group that you start with other like-minded people who are all going to hold each other accountable, whether this is you're going to hire a coach 
who's going to help you execute, going to hold you to deadlines, who's going to help you figure out what you're going to do and really expect you to show progress. Um, thinking about your duty as a role model to somebody else, I'm telling my children that I'm going to do this. I better follow through, so I model the kind of behavior I want them to see. Um, you could get a client, or you know, I've heard from a lot of people who are like, "Well, I wasn't making any progress, so I volunteered to provide this photography, or I volunteered to do this manual, or I told all my friends that I was going to write this ebook and I needed their comments." So, in a way, by creating cl- clients or customers. Then they had to deliver. And so that's how they got themselves over this hurdle about accountability. Or sometimes people teach something. Uh, somebody said, well, I needed to learn the software program, so I volunteered to teach the workshop at work to tell everybody else how to learn how to do it. Because I knew, well, if I had to teach it, I was going to have to learn it myself first. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got myself to learn it. Because if I had just left it like for me to do in my free time because I knew it would be good for my career, it would never have gotten done. So that's really so. If you are an entrepreneur who's running into this, um, outer accountability is the answer. And I've heard from so many obligers where this has really been a key to them to helping them understand the patterns of what they do and don't do successfully. Mm, this is fascinating. I'm going to tell you a story of my friend. In the last three weeks, we just went through this whole thing with him, and I'm going to tell ah. you that. And ah. exactly what you just said, uh, the story is going to blow your mind because okay. what you said is exactly what uh, you know. When I was, when you started explaining, I was like, "Wow, that's exactly him." I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell his name because he might uh, want to kill me later on. But <laughs> <laughs> very wise, I will let him know that he was on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, but before that, I want to know about myself because I am somewhere between a questioner and a rebel. In the sense, I do it because I want to do it, not because the society is going to impose it on me. So where, like, what is it that I need to improve on? Or is outer accountability the thing that all of us need to incorporate in our lives? No, no. Well, first of all, there's a quiz. If you want to take a quiz that will actually spit out an answer, it's at happiercast.com slash quiz. So you can take or, or you can just look on my site, GretchenRubin.com and you know, look, search for quiz and you'll find it. Um, but most people know what they are. Now, it's interesting that you say that you think you're, you find yourself between a question and a rebel because there is a deep affinity between questioners and rebels. But let me ask you this. When you find your, are you, when you, when somebody asks you to do something and you don't want to do it, are you thinking in your mind that doesn't make any sense? Are you thinking in your mind, you're not the boss of me? <laughs> Which of those ideas comes into your mind more readily? I'm actually thinking, uh, is this really going to help help in any way, shape, or form? But at the same time, I'm also thinking, uh, you don't tell me what to do. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah. Um, let's see. If you, How do you feel about New Year's resolutions? Um, I care a lot about my goals and my resolutions in general. New Year's is just one day for me. It's not the only day where I make these things. And You're a questioner. They're a questioner. That's what questioners always at always answer. Oh, almost always they use the word arbitrary. You did not use the keyword arbitrary, which is like the big flashing sign of questioners, but you hinted at arbitrary. Um, because a rebel would typically answer something like, "I would never bind myself in that way. I don't believe in resolutions. Oh. I would never, I would never commit myself to something because I don't know what I'm going to want to do tomorrow." Oh no, I will commit. I love the idea of commitment. I think it's really important to get stuff done. So well, sometimes rebels can commit because rebels can do whatever they want to do, and so you can run into rebels who love love making resolutions and love habits because that's what they want, but they usually talk about it in a different way. Now, I would have to really sit you down and really probe to make sure that but you're leaning towards questioner. Also, questioners are the ones that most often can't diagnose themselves or who insist that they're a mix because upholders, obligers, and rebels feel how different they are from other people once they see it, where questioners feel like, well, I'm a little bit of this and I'm a little bit of that because that's sort of the questioner way. They do it like depending on the situation mm. and they don't realize how um how different they are from other because a questioner said well of course i'm a questioner are isn't everybody <laughs> yeah. and i'm like no they're not you know that's very questioner yeah. um but yeah so i want to hear the story of your friend so yeah, what's the story yeah. of your so my friend uh he is one of the nicest sweetest guys i know and he well he's just so nice he'll do anything like you tell him hey man this is what's going on he's very very compliant to her like he will help you out he'll be he is an obliger i can tell just like as you were explaining i was like yeah that's him and he was having a hard time and he's an aspiring writer he's writing a book he was having a hard time writing 
every day or yep. getting his work done. And uh, when I asked him, he's like, oh, I need to do this. My dad asked me to do that. And that's why I can't yep. do this and that. And all those things, he gave me all these uh, reasons why it was not working. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I put a camera in, on my phone in his face and I recorded a video and I said, you're going to write whatever, a thousand words a day for the next 30 days. And if you don't do that, you're going to pay me and my other buddy, like it's a little accountability thing. You're going to pay us uh, $30 each for every day that you don't write your thousand words. And for the last three weeks, he's been writing thousand words every day and he's been sending a screenshot of that every yes. single day. Yes, because it's outer accountability, 100%. 100%. You're acting as an accountability partner for him, yeah. and that's exactly what he needed. Now, your story also brings up something important about obligers. Obligers often perceive their situation as like, well, I'm so busy doing for other people, I don't have time to do for myself. Mm -hmm. And so they have a fantasy that if only out other expectations would drop away, then they would be doing their inner expectation. You know, if only my dad were on vacation or if my kids were grown or I didn't have this responsibility, if I quit my job, then maybe I'll, you know, if I quit my job, then I can start my textile business from my home that I've been dreaming about but mm -hmm. the thing about obligers is that is not the way that it works even if all those outer uh other outer expectations went away the inner expectation will not be met unless it's accompanied by outer accountability so they i mean i know somebody who quit a great job and was going to pursue their you know their startup idea from their home and totally failed totally mm -hmm. wiped out did nothing and at that time, I had not come up with this framework. But if I knew then what I knew now, I would have been like, hey, buddy, you've got to have that accountability. Yeah. Because, yes, you were super successful when you, when you were in an office situation, when you had team members and deadlines and a boss and a, you know, all this infrastructure of accountability. But when you're on your own, you still need it. And you may have to create it mm -hmm. because um, – Yeah. And, and the fact is, and your friend, it's like, don't think like, oh, after 30 days, like, oh, now he's got the habit of writing. It doesn't matter. Oh, it will. He will peter out. Yep, I will. In a few days, like, you got to keep it going. That accountability has to be in place. Now, it might be that you could space it out. Maybe you're like, okay, I want once a week to get a screenshot if he's in the practice, because the accountability might not need to be as direct every single day, but it might need to be. Um yeah. Different obligers are have different levels of accountability, and they're and they feel accountable to different things. Um, but uh, but see, that was brilliant. That's exact. You did exactly what he needed, which was outer accountability. That's, that's with so consequences. Cool. With yeah. consequences, you with know, consequences. like bucks a day. You know, sixty bucks a day. Yeah. That's not a you know a couple bad days, and you you know that's real money. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, the real consequences are what set him off on the path. I was like, all right. Um, he was struggling. Because, and even though he had a coach, he was struggling because the coach didn't have the same same level of, I guess, uh, carrots and sticks hanging well, there. See, the thing is, uh, coaches and even to a greater extent, therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists often don't want to impose accountability on you. Like I have a friend who's a psychiatrist and, and I drive her crazy with this because she's always saying, well, I want you to hold yourself accountable. See, I'm not really arguing that. I'm arguing find someone else to hold you accountable because I just feel like that's so much easier and faster. Instead of trying to change yourself and your own inner nature, mm -hmm. just build in the outer accountability. Like he could have spent six months talking to somebody about his inner psychic process or he can have you saying, buddy, it's 30 bucks every day you, you, you're short, you know? Yeah. And now he's right. He's been writing for three weeks. Like yeah. that's just easier and more direct. It's easier to change your environment than it is to change yourself. If it's even possible to change yourself. But sometimes people, you know, like you need somebody who's going to, and my sister is a, has, is a type one diabetic and you know, doctors have, a, and, and, and nurses and other healthcare professionals often have an important role to to play in holding people accountable for things like monitoring their blood sugar or taking their blood pressure medication or whatever. And my sister said, oh, well, some patients say that my doctor is too nice. And I was like, well, ooh, what does that mean? And she goes, well, they feel like he's not tough enough on them when they don't do a good job of managing their diabetes. And I'm saying that's because they want him to hold them accountable. They want him to say, hey, look at this day. What's going on here? Mm. You're way off track. This needs to change. What's going wrong? Let's figure this out. I'm watching. I'm looking over your shoulder. I'm seeing your numbers, and this is not good. They need that accountability. That's what's going to help them. So sometimes people think, oh, well, I don't want to pay. I don't want to play the tough one. 
Um, if somebody doesn't want to play the tough one, they're not a good accountability partner for you because you need somebody who's going to hold you to it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I know I have I have yeah. no problem being the tough one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you'll crack the whip, all yeah. right? See, and that's what your friend needs. Yeah. You know, you're not being a jerk. You're being helpful. And I've heard from so many obligers who are like, oh, you know, my boss uh, just lobs out these things like, hey, when you get a chance to do this, do it. And I never get it done and it drives me crazy. Or I wish my husband would hold me accountable for going to the gym, but he says like he doesn't want to be nagging me, but I wish he would. You know, when people say they want to be held accountable, they know they need it. I think sometimes people need accountability and they don't know it. But if people ask for accountability, it's because they know they need it. So either help them get accountability or f- help them figure out how to get it if you're not going to be the one to provide the accountability. Yeah. And there's a there's a book called uh, Carrots and Steaks by Ian Ayers. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And- have, I, well, I, I feel like rewards are very tricky. Um, this isn't really about rewards. Yeah. This is about accountability. Yeah. This commitment. Yeah, which can be, yeah. 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 No, I agree. I agree. Expectations. Because a commitment is something that you say you're going to do. An expectation is something that you are expected to do. Mm. So a commitment is something you make for yourself. An expectation is something that someone else imposes on you. How do you meet an expectation? Now, you might have expectations for yourself. Mm. Um, There's certain words that I feel like are tricky. Like I feel like motivation is a very tricky word. Because what does it mean? Does it mean how much you want something or how much you're actually going to do in order to get something? It's ambiguous, you know? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Never thought of it uh, because they use the word commitment contract in the book all the time and also on their platform yep. where they use it. But yep. Yep. wow, this is this has been so much fun, Gretchen. I, I really enjoyed it. Now, as you look back at, you know, you've looked you've you've been studying this project or studying this whole field for like years now. As you look back, what would be your one parting piece of guidance to our ambitious entrepreneurs, our listeners here? My one piece of advice, um, and I saw this when I was writing The Happiness Project, I saw it even more when I was writing Happier at Home, and I saw it even more when I was writing my book Better Than Before about habits, which is that in the end, we all have to decide what is right for us and what is true for us. And there's so many people, including experts, who want to say that they have the magic one size all fits, one size fits all solution to a happy life, to a productive life? You know, the secret to productivity is to get up early and do your three most demanding things before breakfast. Or you should start small, or give yourself a cheat day, um, and uh, or you know things like you know to be truly creative, you need to have a lot of clean surfaces because a cluttered desk means a cluttered mind. These might be true for you. They may not be true for you because some people thrive in simplicity and bare surfaces and clean spaces and not much on the walls. And some people love abundance and profusion and choices and buzz. And some people like to get up early and do their hardest things first because that's when they're freshest. Then there are some people who are at their most productive and creative and energetic later in the day. And there, and you really just have to say to yourself, well, what's true for me? What kind of person am I? Do I need accountability because I'm an obliger? Or am I a rebel who every, as soon as I have accountability, I want to do the opposite. And so accountability is actually counterproductive to me. And the idea that I would join an accountability group is like the worst thing I could do because mm-hmm. then I'll just be resisting that accountability group. I have to think about what I want. What do I want right now? What kind of person am I? That's the way to do it as a rebel. Um, and the happiness project, you know, everyone's happiness project would be different. I mean, for one person, it's about travel and adventure. Another person might be music. Another person, you know, like, uh, you know, and, 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 and what people want from their work. You know, some people love to work uh, long, intense hours. And some people don't want to work long, intense hours. Some people are sprinters and some people are marathoners. Like, I'm a marathoner who likes to, do like, start early and have a lot of lead time and is not never up against a deadline. That's how I do my best and most creative work. Some people are sprinters and they do their best work by long, working long, intense periods right up against a deadline. That's how they do their best work. It's not that mm. there's a right way and a wrong way. It's whatever works for you. When have you succeeded in the past? What appeals to you? What situations bring out your best? These are the questions. But I think so often people are told, this is the way you should do it, or this is the way Steve Jobs did it, or this is the way Ben Franklin did it. Um, and therefore, that's what, how it should work for you. And if it doesn't, you're doing it wrong or there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. There's no right way or wrong way. It's whatever works for you. But so that's why self-knowledge is really at the key 
to all of these because when we know ourselves, then we can shape our lives around our own nature, our own values, our own interests. This is so, so, so true. As as business owners, as entrepreneurs, or as human beings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have to live by our own rhythm, by our own, yes. uh, by the way we think is right in some ways and not let society decide what is right for us, what's wrong for us. And yes, to be, to truly be ourselves is, as they say, it's one of the greatest sources of happiness. And that's what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Gretchen, this has been a lot of fun, a lot of great learning. I'm sure our listeners are enjoying it thoroughly. How can they learn more about you, find more of your works? And I know you have a bunch of other books as well that you can yes. <laughs> t- t- tell us all about it. Yeah, well, um, I have a website, GretchenRubin.com, where I post about my daily adventures and happiness and good habits. Um, so there's a lot. There are a lot of resources there. The quiz, the Four Tendencies quiz is there, um, and a lot of resources about um, happiness and habits um, for people who want them. Um, I also have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where I talk about happiness and good habits with my sister, Elizabeth uh, Kraft. She's a TV writer living in L.A., and so we talk every week, and that's, you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts mm-hmm. and um i'm on f- facebook and uh and twitter and instagram and pinterest all under the name gretchen rubin i love to connect with people and um i just launched an app that is about the four tendencies which is called better so if you're interested in kind of learning more about the four tendencies and figuring out how to harness the four tendencies in your own life you could check out that app that literally just launched yesterday so we're like in you know uh, kind of like uh, shock mode because uh, it's it's wow. actually out in the world now. Um, and I'm working on a book about the four tendencies too. So that'll be coming out soon, um, which goes into much greater detail about the four tendencies. Because so often when I talk to people about happiness, they know what they want to do. They know what would make them happier, but they're like, why can't I get myself to do it? Um, and mm. so that's a very interesting question. Wow, you are one busy woman, Gretchen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much uh, again for taking the time to do this. Oh, thank you. So fun to talk to you. So, my ambitious friends, do you know what is the number one dream killer? It is by far the lack of systematic execution. Most people just haphazardly execute without a proper system in place, and then they keep wondering why they're not seeing any results. Week after week goes by and you see no real progress. And you keep wondering why people who are not even half as smart as you or capable as you continue to outperform you. Well, the truth is, whether you like it or not, your execution system is broken and you need to fix it now. The problem is that nobody ever taught us how to execute. We just kind of stumbled into our own method of execution, which is not even a method most of the times. But the good thing is there is help now. Thanks to the book, The Four Disciplines of Execution, which explains how to execute like a machine. And I've been using the four disciplines of execution in my business, and I absolutely love it. And I want to share the system with you because it really works, and I love to share things that work. So these four disciplines have skyrocketed my speed of execution and given me a sense of control in this business that I'd never had before. So I have created a free quick guide outlining the four disciplines of execution. You can download and start using that guide right away. So just text the word summary to 44222 or go to 2000books.com slash summary and download the free guide there and start executing on your goals like a machine. Here's the thing, if any of these four disciplines is broken, you're probably not seeing the results you want. Heck, you're probably not seeing any results. And this applies to every walk of life, whether it is diet and exercise or building a business. The fundamentals of execution do not change. So just text the word summary to 44222 or go to 2000books.com summary and download the free four disciplines of execution guide and start executing like a pro. So I have something really exciting to share with you. After listening to your feedback over the last few months, I have opened up parts of my Thursdays this month, this September, for conversations with you. Yes, you, my fellow listeners, 
my fellow ambitious entrepreneurs, I want to talk to you. I want to listen to you. I want to answer any and all business questions you may have. And I want to take in any suggestions you have for improvement. So if you want to talk to me, just schedule a free 30-minute chat with me at 2000books.com slash discuss or text the word discuss to 44222 and we will get talking, you and I. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this because it will really give me the opportunity to get to know you, understand you, and serve you better and help uh, help you in any way I can. So, if by the way, I want to be doubly clear that this is not a sales call. I will not pitch anything to you and I really hope you won't try to sell anything either to me. So, let's just talk like friends, okay? Deal? Now, I'm only doing this for Thursdays in September, and there are only four Thursdays this month, so get a time slot before they're all gone. Just head on over to 2000books.com slash discuss or text the word discuss to 44222 and schedule a time that is convenient for you. Now, I'm really looking forward to talking with you, so let's do this.